0: come to los angeles the sun shines bright the beaches are wide and inviting and the orange grove stretches far as the eye can see there are jobs aplenty and land is cheap every working man can have his own house and inside every house a happy all-american family you can have all this and who knows you could even be discovered become a movie star or at least see one life is good in Los Angeles it's paradise on earth (laughs) that's what they tell you anyway
1: welcome to the rewind movie podcast
0: I think your case and my case are somehow connected it's fleur-de-lis again fleur-de-lis whatever you
1: desire porno high-class whores have to look like movie stars Who knows what else? The following review will contain spoilers and may contain strong language.
0: Rollo Tomasi's the reason I became a cop. I
1: wanted to catch the guys who thought they could get away with it. Today we're going to be discussing L.A. Confidential. Starring Guy Pearce, Russell Crowe, Kevin Spacey, Kim Basinger and James Cromwell. Directed by Curtis Hanson.
0: Gentlemen, just go out and get him. Use all necessary for us. The people of Los Angeles demanded.
1: Hello and welcome to the Rewire Movie Podcast. I wouldn't trade places with Edmund Axley right now for all the whiskey in Ireland.
2: It's Galley in Glasgow. That'll do, pig. It's Devlin in London. Have your
3: valediction, Boyle. It's Matt in South Korea. LAPD Shipbird. Get the fuck out of here, I'll call your wife to come get you. It's Patrick from London.
1: Oh, very good. Welcome, uh welcome back guys. And um and today we are doing the first of many listener requests, which uh which comes from uh from Ollie on Twitter. Or as he's uh he's known otherwise on the handle at remedy underscore RPM. Uh and he chose uh Curtis Hansen's nineteen ninety seven film, LA Confidential. Matt, have you do you see LA Confidential when it came out?
4: I didn't see it when it came out. I first saw LA Confidential around 2000-2001 when my family first got Sky Digital. We were pretty late getting Sky. I know you and uh, Devlin had it. Did you have it Patrick too growing up? Never. Ah okay so I got it around the 2000. I had NTL. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, it was on one of the movie channels and I got into this habit of making these VHS compilations using four-hour tapes and putting them on long play to try and squeeze up to about three or four films onto one video, and the quality really suffered, but, uh, you know, I didn't mind. You could just cram them all on. And LA Confidential made it onto one of these mixes um, alongside something that, strangely, was also directed by Curtis Hanson, uh, Wonder Boys, that you've done previously on the pod. So that was on the same video, I think. Uh, I watched it... Um, a couple of times before caving in and getting one of those really early edition, bare bones, card sleeve DVDs with the clicky plastic spine. Do you remember them? Like the really early issue oh, yeah. ones. Yeah. And uh, I never upgraded that DVD. I didn't get any further special editions or, or Blu-rays, which makes me think that prior to researching this podcast, I hadn't actually seen the film again since like you know 18 years ago so uh but back then i maybe saw it three or four times in relatively quick succession uh i was already familiar with crow from gladiator uh which i'd seen at the cinema around 2000 and i don't know if i'd seen memento yet with guy pierce but i had that on dvd around the same time and uh one of the reasons i sorted out was spacey because he was firmly in everyone's consciousness as being a great actor usual suspects seven and American Beauty had just come out in 99, so he was, uh, yeah, on, uh, on everyone's minds at that, at that time. So that's one of the reasons I sorted out and watched it.
1: What about you, Patrick? Uh, I
3: don't, I don't actually remember the first time I saw this. I think it's just a film I saw. Um, I, I don't, I, I've definitely seen it before. I think I've seen it a couple of times before. Um, and oh, I don't know whether to give away what I, what I thought of it just now, but, um, like Matt, you just mentioned Memento there. I definitely watched Memento before this. I was definitely aware of Guy Pearce before I was unaware of Russell Crowe and all the all the cast before I saw it. Maybe not as familiar with Kim Basinger. Um I'm not sure, maybe on TV, uh, but um I've definitely seen it, but I don't believe you have Devlin.
2: That was uh yeah, that was the premise for this for this episode was that I was convinced that I'd never seen it until I watched it and realized hey. I had <laughs> <You're a liar. laughs> uh, I, it, I'd completely, completely slipped my mind until it started. And then I realized that the, the Danny DeVito on the QT and very hush hush. I was like, I know this. Then I thought, oh, maybe it had just been sampled somewhere or I'd heard it elsewhere. And then as soon as, uh, um, James actor's surname escapes me. Cromwell. James Cromwell turned up and I was like, Oh, you bastard. I know you did it. I never realized <laughs> that but I, I, I had seen it and like bits and pieces of it came back to me in, in, in waves. There's a whole bunch of it that I hadn't remembered. Uh, I will say I didn't remember it very well at all. I was convinced that, well, we'll get towards which bits of the plot I thought I remembered. But um, yeah, so the, the, the general, the, it was a strange experience watching a film uh and it wasn't like it was sort of jogging memories as it went along. It was after I'd watch it, I'd then remember that I had seen that sequence before. So uh I, I don't know when that would have been. I must have seen it maybe once when I was around fifteen or sixteen, locked away in the recesses of my memory and then never watched again. Um uh, so yes, had seen it. Dev-
1: oh, okay, Devlin, can you answer me this then? Yeah. What film did you Think you were avoiding because just to give you a little bit of a backstory, before Ollie had uh, requested this, I had actually kind of put it to you that uh, I'd saw it recently with my fiance. I was like, Oh man, I think we need to discuss LA Confidential. And you were aggressively saying, I am not watching that unless we're doing it for the show.
2: It wasn't so much that it was this film that I was thinking of avoiding, I put it into a category of films that I felt were like were, um, I mean, this was like a big, you know, uh, a big success. It was a big hit, especially among people who, you know, cinephiles and whatnot. So I think it was, it was a case of like, um, if it falls into like a genre that I, I don't have any particular interest in, um, I felt maybe that it would just be sort of a bit of its time. It just, it felt like the kind of film that considering the vast, Overwhelming deluge of stuff there is to watch. It was more that it struck me as the exact kind of film that I would probably never get around to. Not so much that I was, I, I was, uh, uh averse to watching it. It was more just a case of this is going to be one that falls. Like, I don't know, if you'd managed to get to, to like our age now and had never seen American Beauty, I can't imagine anyone would really feel that inspired to sit down and watch it just cause it's, it was kind of crystallized as being of that specific time.
3: Okay. That was yeah. how I'd
2: filed this one away. But clearly I was wrong and I had watched it. But I don't remember it. No, so let's, let's act as if I don't know what's happening. Because I will say I'm not, <laughs> uh, I'm not super familiar with it. I remember Danny DeVito talking about on the QT and I remember that, um, uh, the pig farmer did it. <laughs> Sorry, spoilers. <laughs>
3: Spoiler. <laughs> I've definitely had enough time between viewings to enjoy this kind of, kind of a fresh, this time galley. Like it's mm. been en- enough years for me to have sufficiently, I don't know, I don't know this film inside out.
1: I, I was exactly the same. And, and similar to Matt, um, this was a blockbuster rental. And it wasn't because I was a big fan of Curtis Hansen at the time, the director, it was Kevin Spacey. And, and Matt, you said it, you know, seven usual suspects. Uh, Swimming with Sharks, which used to be on mm. Sky Movies mm-hmm. a lot. And which I, I've definitely I've never seen. And also, I remembered him in in Outbreak. He was like one of the characters that I yeah. quite enjoyed in that film. And, and so I was tracking his career and the trajectory. At Blockbuster, I remember seeing his face as Kim Basinger and him are the prominent Um, sort of stars of the film according to the poster, so I was very much like, well, so far in the five films that I've seen him in well, he's never made a bad film, so yeah, I'll watch this. Guys, would you like a a plot summary? Uh, And I use that word loosely. Good luck. I know, yeah. Yes, the unenviable task of, uh, of condensing the dense narrative in fact, into something. In
3: fact, Gally, I'd like you to give me a plot summary of the book and then the plot summary of the film and how they both differ. <laughs> and I'll see, you, I'll see you in three hours, yeah? Yeah, I'd like, to, I'd
2: like to hear about how the book fits into James Elroy's wider series of books. I don't, know, I, I don't feel like I'm
3: getting out of context. Over to you, Gally.
1: Welcome to the City of Angels, where whatever you desire is available, but at a cost. In the midst of a power struggle over Mickey Cohen's drug rackets in early 1950s Los Angeles, we follow three policemen who are entangled in a series of murders involving drugs, prostitution, and corruption. The first of these cops is Bud White, played by Russell Crowe, a towering brute who's all heart and no brains, whose propensity to protect women in distress leads him into the arms of the beautiful Lynn Brackett, played by Kim Basinger, who is a prostitute for fleur-de-lis, an agency who cuts up regular girls to look like movie stars. Our second cop is Ed Exley, played by Guy Pearce, a rookie whose self-righteousness is only matched by his ambition as he tries to live up to his father's legacy within the force. And finally, we have Detective Jack Vincennes, played by Kevin Spacey, a smooth-talking shyster who moonlights as a technical advisor on the hit TV show Badge of Honour. He also does shady deals with local tabloid journalist, an all-round scumbag, Sid Hutchins, played by Danny DeVito. So who will get out alive and what sacrifices will our main players have to make in order to attain redemption in LA Confidential? Good job. Thank you, thank you. Well, I was trying to avoid giving too many spoilers, despite the fact that we are a spoilerific uh, show. I'm going to say it one last time, if you've never seen the film... Please turn off the episode, go watch the film, and then come back, because a lot of your enjoyment may be predicated on the fact that this film, like a lot of the films in the 90s, has got big twists and turns, right? I mean, uh, before we even get into it, was it just me, or was it like that decade? We had a bunch of them, right? We had Scream, Usual Suspects, Sixth Sense. Seven? Did you say seven, then? Can anyone think of why that was? Was it just that they were popular? or Because it just seemed to be the done thing.
3: You get kind of like a a, a fashion of writing, don't you? Mm. You get trends. Everyone a certain time the... trends. Right now we're in the comic book universe. And back then, I think that might have been the way writers in their guild or whatever in Hollywood were, were writing. And they were relying on twists and turns for the audience because they see it that was what was attracting audiences
4: i was going to blame sixth sense but it's actually a few years later than than scream and seven and usual suspects they were around 95 96 i think so yeah
2: maybe it's just a trend it could have been that because this is you know based on the on the elroy novel it might just be that it was it's certainly more so back then hollywood would take its cues oftentimes from literature you'd get like a rash of adaptations of very similar type. I guess the same thing happens kind of in the 2000s, the later part of the 2000s, with the young adult craze, where very, very, very similar dystopian teen sci-fi become uh, films. It's all...
3: But the big twist isn't in the book, is it, uh,
2: Of, of I I must admit, I don't know much about James Elroy at all other than that he wears very colourful shirts and is kind of an (laughs) arsehole.
3: Golly, I don't know when you want to tackle the big a big twist,
1: yeah. Well, I think, we, I think we, we may as well now because we're going to talk about the film. So, there are a few big, big changes, and we'll actually talk about the way that um, Curtis Hansen and the other writer Brett uh, Hangeland uh, adapted uh, the just sprawling, dense narratives of James Elroy's uh, original book of LA Confidential. Um, but, but what some of the major differences, and this will be come maybe to as a surprise to you, Devlin. But the Rolo Tomasi uh, thing, that's completely made up for the film. So that was not in the book. The shootout at the end, that's pretty unsurprising. That is not in the book. Yeah, Uh, And I do believe, actually, James James Elroy said, it's bullshit, but it's inspired bullshit, (laughs) Uh, the the ending. Uh, I was like, okay, fine. And um, there's the Lana Turner scene is not in the book. There's loads of bits and bobs that are not in the, the book, but also the reveal and the way that um, Captain Dudley Smith, uh, his his ending, um, that is completely made up again. There's, there's closure in this film and in the book. There is no closure.
2: I had um, uh, one little trivia, because obviously I, I, I don't know the, the film particularly well, so I didn't want to load myself up with
1: internet-based
2: trivia and pretend that I was expert, because I, I really don't know much about this one at all, but I couldn't help myself and I had a little look, uh, about this, the kind of the changes that came from the book to the film. And one that really struck me was that, uh, the character of Jack Vincennes was, uh, portrayed very differently in the screenplay than he was in the book. In the, in the film, obviously he's Hollywood Jack. He's, you know, he's a real smooth talking kind of guy, um, who's, you know, kind of morally somewhat morally bankrupt uh, a little bit addicted to fame very vain in the book apparently they call him a like, trash can jack yeah um <laughs> and one thing that was really interesting that i that i saw was that uh his character is different because he's a quite haunted figure in the book because of uh the accidental shooting of a pair of tourists oh my Basically. goodness me I know Basic
1: right? <laughs>
2: <laughs> so, I mean um so it's very possible that the reason why there were so many kind of like twisty thrillers around this was was that you know Elroy was a I, I would imagine a phenomenally successful writer, so even if people weren't adapting his work, they were just ripping him off anyway.
4: There's an interview with Elroy on one of the making ofs, and it says uh I, I found him Very tough to take. I think it could all be his shtick, but his arrogance Mm. and his delight in hearing himself speak made me wish I'd never researched him. Uh, like one thing to note about him is that his mother was found murdered. Uh, she was Mm. an off duty nurse and she was strangled by the side of the road and the, it's a cold case. It was never solved. And, uh, you know, this, uh, may have triggered his desire to explore the world of crime in his in his work and it could also explain that this kind of seething bitterness and cynicism that that he has uh he's, he's an unusual mm. chap but, uh yeah you can seek it out on youtube if you want to but i kind of wish i hadn't
3: well that's where just to talk back to the film that's kind of where there's two things there isn't there that there's bud white's motivation and and his character arc is mm. built upon witnessing his father murder his mother and then also um if you're saying that the, 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 the Elroy's mother was murdered then they got away that's this is where we get Roller Tamassi and um Exley's motivation that his father was murdered and the murderer got away so it's it's an interesting read of that from his character that hmm. he puts that into the story that we get here in this film
1: No no I totally agree and um and one of the things that that Curtis Hansen and I I fortunately I said Brett Hengland, I meant Brian Hangeland um He's one talking of the football I know, yeah. <laughs> Br- Brad <de> Hangerman, <laughs> not the former Crystal Palace and Fulham centre half. No, I'm uh, very much talking about the uh, the Hollywood writer of um, Dream Warriors. So, yes, and uh, and the Stallone uh, Bandera's uh, duel of assassins. Uh, no, one of the things that they talked about was how they took this uh, this book of of normally of eight plot lines and they condensed it to three. And everything that had the the three cops in, they kept in, and everything else they just uh, they just mercifully got rid of and just just cut it away. I
3: think that was a really clever way to adapt it from them, wasn't it? That didn't they just identify all the scenes that involved all three characters and work start there and build it from from that.
1: They spent two years adapting it, seven drafts, turning down different projects. You know, this was a real labor of love for. The director Curtis Hansen who I have talked about um, with Devlin when we talked Wonder Boys and I'll maybe you know expand my uh, my views on him and uh, him as a filmmaker as we go through um, this episode but just the just the sheer amount of the, the only comparison I could make like from this era was uh, Peter Jackson and adapting Tolkien you know with Lord of the Rings where you've got this mm-hmm. sprawling book that is huge This series of books and you just need to kind of cut it down to write. what's the core of the story from what Elroy said at the time that's what they did but reading interviews more contemporary interviews with him from like last year he seems to have almost disowned LA Confidential a little bit he has a website
4: and every film that has been made based on his work he'll kind of critique it and LA Confidential was the only one that he Approved of, I think, at the time.
1: And uh, one of the other interesting aspects of this film, we look at it now as a kind of star-studied ensemble, but at the time in 97, Guy Pearce, Russell Crowe. I knew Guy Pearce from Neighbours because I used to watch Neighbours all the time. Um, I hadn't seen Priscilla, Queen of the Desert at this point, mm-hmm. so he really was a complete unknown to me. I mean, what about you guys?
2: It's, uh, it's interesting to see how small they both are on the poster. Yeah.
1: Jesus Christ. <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> Russell Crowe looks like a smudge <laughs> and you think this that's it's a strange kind of hollywood politics that it's uh it's a kevin spacey movie apparently
3: in the end credits he gets top billing and you know he he, he doesn't he's not in the whole film and mm. kim basic is proper front and center in this post yeah. as well mm. Um i suppose that's the seduction within the film of fleur-de-lis and i can't believe how small crow is that's <laughs> Such I think um, man. <laughs> I think this, this goes back a little bit to
2: to what we were saying about um in remember we we were talking in Munchhausen where the, there were issues that uh, Robin Williams couldn't be credited in the film because they said that they would try and sell it on his name. I think it's going to be a situation like that, like uh, Kevin Spacey's the famous one at this point.
5: Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, he
2: won an Oscar mm-hmm. at this point. Kim Basinger, yeah. even though her her career was kind of rescued by this film. Uh, she's still the, the most recognizable name in the
1: well one of the so when they were in the pre production Curtis hansen uh is trying to get financing for the script, and I think he went to Warner Brothers initially to actually finance the film, not just distribute it and um and the studio heads there were saying mm, can we we like the story, but can we just um reduce all of these plot lines to one character so we can make it a star vehicle?" which is just classic, you know, you hear these stories of of, of studios and and committee thinking. It makes complete sense that they would do that because you could imagine, like, Stallone at the front of this with a gun, LA Confidential. You could easily see Mm -hmm. it. Um, But Hansen said no, not going to do that, didn't want to compromise his vision. And he eventually sought out um, a producer who, Devon, I don't know if you know his credits, but you'll be very happy
2: it's uh
1: Arnold Milton, right? It is Arnold Milton, yeah. He was produced Produce Brazil. Some of Produce Brazil, Fight Club, Memoirs of an Invisible Man, he was the exact producer on. Yeah. but like, he <laughs> is responsible for He is, yeah. And he um he kind <laughs> of backed Hansen's vision with the casting because one of the things that the studios were saying, uh well, God, was, he also each well, we... two. He did <laughs> he did. <laughs> He did both under sieges. <laughs> yeah. He he literally has produced every film that we've discussed, uh, including demons. I don't think he did, but I mean it would be nice if he did. Um, but yeah, he, um, he uh, the studios were saying, "Well, why have we got these Australian actors?" And it's a common misconception, isn't it? R- Russell Crowe is from New Zealand, and Guy Pearce was born in is somewhere outside of London, wasn't he? Uh, and they just obviously yeah. moved to Australia and developed their their Aussie accents as they travel around the world and start fighting. But, but yeah, it's, uh, it, it, they didn't want to do it, but he, he backed Hanson with these unknowns in it. And I think it really helps the film that you have no idea who's going to live or die because mm-hmm. at the point when this came out, who's Russell Crowe apart from the guy from Virtuosity and Guy Pierce is Priscilla Queen of the Desert. Well, no, Crowe's
3: done Romper Stomper as well. He kind of got the film mm-hmm. based off how fucking brutish he is in Rumpus Stomper, which, um, I, I was kind of familiar with the film before this as well, because my dad is a big fan of Ron Bastom, He thinks it's brilliant. And, uh, he, he, it was one of those films he discovered that was kind of low key nineties. And he, he'd go, I think i mentioned this before when we did, um, we discussed Terminator. He'd go to the video shop and he'd see, he'd rent a VHS based off the, the poster, the front cover. Mm. And he's like, mm-hmm. that looks great. Neo Nazis. Yeah. I love a bit of that. And he loved it. And, um, he introduced me to that when I was quite young as well. Um, thanks. <laughs> to...
1: The film, you said it before Devlin, it feels like a big Hollywood production, but interestingly, once you start scratching at the surface of it, it's almost made with a, an independent spirit, really a $35 million budget, which is kind of peanuts for a period film, mm-hmm. especially a period film in LA. Um, it made like four times its budget. Uh, it won two Oscars, one Best Supporting Actress for Kim Basinger and uh, Best Adapted nominated Screenplay. Not nominated for nine. Nominated for nine, but unfortunately there was a big ship the very same year that kind of uh, <laughs> took everyone's everyone's thunder away. Uh, it was the same year yeah. as Titanic, so um, it just got the scraps from the table that was left from the 11 wins that that got. Uh, luckily it wasn't...
2: Oh, no, it wasn't. Uh, was it nominated for cinematography? didn't win. Oh, sure. uh, oh, I hope so because awesome.
1: the film looks great. Like I yeah, I do love the, uh, oh, I love the uh TV's finotti again and
2: the like the the contrast and the lighting and kind of the the, the shootout. I, I don't know if I can remember like a quote unquote action sequence that was lit as well as that was.
3: But also one of the I think one of the films that he like said he's got this um independent sensibilities with with its budget and to keep that budget down, I think in the making of documentary uh, we were discussing, they they even say it was 15 million to start with and it, it must have risen thank God, but shooting the majority of the film on location uh, around LA and hmm. thank God LA still got some 50s architecture to, to revisit, but it's very convincing you know there's shots down long streets to see the hollywood hills and sunset boulevard and some really wonderful architecture interiors for the is it the lapd's um main building and office blocks and Mm, that mm. all adds to this film a lot making la a very important character within the Mm. film which Hanson wanted as well
2: do you guys ever see um there's a, a documentary. I've not seen it myself, unfortunately, but um, I don't know whether you guys would have. Um, it's called Los Angeles Plays Itself. I'm looking that up right now. It's like a really long form, uh, more like an essay than it is a documentary. But um, it's like a patchwork of, uh, of of films which have which were shot in Los Angeles, and it's kind of the, the way LA constantly holds up a mirror to itself and the importance of. What LA means when it's being represented on screen. I just wondered whether anyone had seen it.
1: I no, it's like no I've not seen old. it. I think it's no, no, no. three hours long, so. Where, where would you find it, David? Uh,
2: I must admit, I really, I really don't know. Because it's like a, a bit of a kind of experimental, uh, piece, so, um, you can probably buy it from Amazon. Um, certainly I it's something it. that, that I'm interested to, to, to look at. Oh, you know what? It's on the, uh, uh, yeah, you can rent it from Amazon. Mm, okay. Cool. But, um, I, I think a lot of uh, the that the inspiration for that film came from this—the idea of um, the way uh, L.A. Confidential kind of centralized the the city itself and 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 the importance of it being set in that city. Because I mean, it is—you know—it's not just the title. Story, the film, everything revolves around Los Angeles and what it means.
1: Oh no, absolutely, and um, and Patrick, you were saying about how uh, impressive it is that they they managed to capture the era. It reminded me watching it this week how when you get that wrong, it can feel so false. You guys seen Gangster Squad? I mean, because there there is a there is there is an example. From you know a talented bunch of people with a really good cast, but my god, does that feel like such a manufactured world that just does not feel like it's living and breathing? It Always felt very clean uh, you know, to me, which was a problem.
4: It may as well be uh, mm-hmm. Dick Tracy, that thing.
1: Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's got that same vibe, hasn't it? And um, and even even like the master Brian De Palma, Black Dahlia, uh, another one where trying to capture that kind of neo noir L.A. Feel mm-hmm. and uh, they just it, well, I remember that film's just utterly boring as well. Yes. But, but did we see that together? We saw yeah, we did, we saw that
3: one at it. the film festival. Yeah, yeah, yeah it, was. it was
1: just boring. <laughs> oh, it's just, yeah, I mean, you hate to just reduce it down to boring, but that is that was the overarching feeling I had coming out of the, the cinema when I saw it. it. Was like, oh man, I didn't realize Brian De Palma could make such a dull film. You know, we're not gonna, we haven't talked yet about what we think about the plot of this and, and the characters, but just the feel, the the costuming, the locations, I really get a sense of place and time.
3: I think one of the influences for the film was Chinatown. And I think you can, when you think about LA and that film and, and the locations and how it looks and feels for that time and place, I think um, you feel that because it's one of the film's um, biggest uh, accomplishments
1: one of the big themes in the film is the illusion of LA any of you guys been have you been to like Hollywood I have yeah
3: I went went, um, two years ago three years ago
1: did you go to the walk of fame yes I went to the Arnold Schwarzenegger star that was the main one I wanted to see (laughs) I was wearing an Arnold Schwarzenegger t-shirt at the time as so. well. I don't know if you agree, Patrick. So I went about a decade ago for the first time I went and I was so excited because I wanted to visit all these places that um, I'd seen in films and I'd kind of really built up this, uh, this idea of, of, of Los Angeles and specifically Hollywood in that area. And you know, I went to the bar where they drink in swingers. But when I got to uh, the Walk of Fame and I found, you know, Peter Fork and all these other legends that I it's wanted to dirty. get pictures, it, it's filthy, is it? And what was so shocking yeah. was there was just a bunch of crap cosplayers trying to charge me like 10 quid mm-hmm. for a picture, like a crap chat. Some crap are good. Sparrow. Um,
3: to be fair to them, some of them are quite good. But I know what you mean, that they're, they're, they're all over the place because we went to eat at the Hard Rock Cafe. It's kind of something me and my family do on holiday. we we like going to there and we just come down from Griffith park observatory and the observatory is really nice. And, but even one thing that did strike me though, Gally, within that kind of filthy look was driving down to Sunset Boulevard of parking. I I see how they, they could shoot LA confidential now. um, uh, And it look as good because that fifties style and architecture still remains and that you mm-hmm, go down a yeah. side street or Sunset Boulevard, and you see these old motels. They haven't really changed, and the roads look the same, and the hills in the background gives it a nice bo- backdrop that's not really that interrupted from the viewpoint. It's just downtown that's built up, really.
1: So we'll we'll talk about the 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 sort of the themes and the allegories that are going through it. But let's talk about the characters, right? So we're introduced to to Bud White, Russell Crowe. I'm gonna I'm gonna say this now. It could be just a bit of Primacy because I've only just watched the film, but I'm not sure if Russell Crowe's been as good as he is in this film. I think he's so, so good as Bud White, like this tough, brooding bloke who then has this soft center, and he really does show his vulnerability on screen. And I'm not sure he's done that since. i'm um, Maybe I'm like I said, maybe it's just because I just watched the film. I was just gonna
4: talk about the. Uh, the insider a little bit. I think he's got some stuff yes, in there. Yes, that's what I was going to say. But uh, there's mm. the moment in, it's more overt here. There's the moment in the rain where he realizes that, that she's slept with Exley. Uh, and I think he's got the best arc, uh, not out of all the characters. Uh, I, I think Exley's arc is, is probably the strongest, but, but as far as Crow's performances go, he, he gets a, a chance to do a little bit of everything here. And it's, it's really strong. And I think he should play more cops and more more roles like this or perhaps he should have when he was younger but yeah it's probably my favorite russell crowe role that very close to, to gladiator he's, he's very strong in that too but i think bud white's my favorite crow
3: i think bud White's my favorite crow i just love that he's bubbling under the surface for quite a lot of the film but then he shows that soft edge um completely different person uh, is that you mentioned it, Matt? That that scene when he's in the rain and and he hits her mm-hmm. is is really really shocking. I think it's done really well. Well, particularly it's, it's been set up so
4: is, so clearly that he he despises well, that, film. right?
3: Yes, exactly. And he's betrayed his own uh sensibility. And it, when he holds the fist and he has the moment, it, it's a really great moment. I think when she retreats
4: uh, into that that kind of uh nook, he. He kind of holds that that third punch, if there was going to be a third punch, and he realizes that he's kind of become yeah. his father for that for that moment, and he actually runs away to his car to kind of take go and take it out That's on. That's ex-
3: great. We talk to Exley. Coming out of the
0: rain. Oh, I want to know what happened with Exley. Are you going to tell me what happened with you and Exley? We talked. So tell me about. It.
1: No!
5: No! Fuck
1: you! I'm going fucking... to fucking... go for 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 my favourite scene with uh, with Russell Crowe as Bud White. Is it's it's again? It's all the stuff where he's showing his vulnerability. It's when he's with uh, Lynn in the bedroom, and he's and it, I think it's partly because I can totally identify with what the character's saying, which is he's, he's, he's sort of doubting himself. I uh, I want to be a detective, but I'm not. I'm just not smart enough. And uh, and then she kind of pulls him out of that and says, "No, listen. You've you're the one that you found me. You found mm-hmm. Pierce.
0: I could get a chance to work homicide." like a real detective that prick actually he shot the wrong guys whoever killed Stenzlin is still around I know it in here I know it there's something wrong with the night owl I just can't prove it that's all I'm not smart enough just the guy they bring in to scare the other guy's shitless
4: you're wrong you found Patrick. You found me.
1: You're smart enough. Like you said, Patrick, he's he's bubbling the whole time, isn't he? I remember reading um, an anecdote from the costume designer who basically said that we wanted to make him bigger than he than Russell Crowe, the the actor, is. So we um, we just made all of his costuming smaller, so everything was tight and bulging. Mm-hmm. Except and the You really get birds, that sense. Are they are on everyone, though, in this yeah, film, aren't they? True. But the other the other trick that they did is they pulled his trousers up to his like past his belly button, so, <laughs> so his, his upper <laughs> torso looks huge.
4: Yeah, stick him in a vest in that other scene as
2: well. That worked
3: when he does boil over as well. There are great moments that pay off, aren't they? I I love the moment where he breaks the chair, mm-hmm. and uh, well, it, it's my favourite scene of the film. Actually, is the when they're in, interrogating all three suspects for the night owl. Uh, they've got them each and. I don't, we can go into the scene a bit more, but when he snaps that chair, I, I fucking love that bit. But mm. also the good cop, bad cop scene when he hangs uh, the DA out the window. Yeah. And he, you you would not fuck with Bud White, would you? <laughs> you would not fuck with, you'd not shag his girlfriend.
1: <laughs> he is. He's like a force of nature in the film. Like He literally just destroys everything that he comes into contact with. Uh, when he's in that kind of trigger mode, and and a bit like Marty McFly, he's got the trigger word, hasn't he? So the Mexican yeah. during the blood, Christ- the the bloody Christmas says something about his mother, and that's it. Mm. That's him like <laughs> ah, yeah. and then uh, the um yeah, the um the chap who's um who's being interrogated by Axley, you know, as soon as they say, he says,
4: oh, that's Devito when Devito says, uh, calls her a slut, and he and he goes goes crazy in that moment.
3: Well, we set that up very early on, is it his first scene? He's staking out a house where there's domestic abuse and...
4: Yeah, that, that, that close up of him, uh, just through the car window, he's just staring and, uh, the kind of the type, the typed, uh, character names come up on the screen for each of the three male leads. And that, that's quite iconic now, that shot of him, um, just staring into the, mm. into the house. And they always say, like, when you're writing, you, when you introduce the character, the first thing, that they're doing is incredibly important. What are they doing when you first meet them? Cause it, it's like a real shorthand for, for the character. And he's just eyeing that, uh, that window and the domestic violence that's probably gonna, gonna go on. So we know exactly who he is right from the get go.
1: And that shorthand, it kind of plays into all three of our, our sort of cop characters, I guess. Ed Axley, Guy Pierce. I don't know about you guys, but I, I kept flipping my allegiances throughout the whole film where, so initially mm-hmm. where we meet him. He's this new cop who is going to kind of change the whole department, uh, and, I'm, and I'm, I'm thinking well this is our, this is our lead character, right this is the person, this is the hero of the piece. It's a very
3: clever setup though isn't it from james from uh, James Cromwell asking him, what's your character? Are you going to do this? You yeah, do that? and he said it's a very very neat setup for this character It's, re- it's really clever. Would you be willing to plant
4: corroborative evidence on a suspect you knew to be guilty in order to ensure an indictment? Dudley, we've been over this. Yes or no, Edmund? No. Would you be willing to beat a confession out of a suspect you knew to be guilty? No. Would you be willing to shoot a hardened criminal in the back in order to offset the chance that
0: some lawyer... No. Then, for the love of God, don't be a detective.
4: Stick to assignments where you don't have to make those kind of choices. Dudley, I know
0: you mean well, but I don't need to do it the way you did.
4: Or my father. Uh, he's my favorite of the three. Like every time I've watched it, I'm, I'm always drawn to, to Exley. And, you know, it's, mm. it's that strict code and this unwavering morality rather than Bud's brutish force. But I agree with you a bit, Gali, that as the film goes on, you kind of lean towards Bud at times, but you know, uh Exley gets the girl, albeit, albeit temporarily, but let, let's face it, who doesn't. And uh he kind of asserts himself as, shotgun ed that that's one of my favorite scenes the the shotgun ed scene uh it's during that house raid on the the dog killing rapists and uh he kind of uh there's a moment there that makes him very complex where he chases the guy into the elevator and actually gets one one shot off because he doesn't know what he's who he's firing at really when he shoots into that elevator mm-hmm. it's, it's a very irresponsible thing for exley to do and it's unlike him but in, as a, as a well-rounded mm. character, we've got some, also got some moments of, of lightness. Uh, there's the it was Lana Turner incident with, uh, with Spacey. That's kind of one of the funnier moments in the film as well. So he's got a bit of everything, actually. I think if I was an actor, I'd like to, to play that
2: one. Well, I, I agree. Cause I, I think, um, the, the great thing about his character is that so much of it is more interior. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, we've, we've said that you get to see the kind of the, the roiling, uh, Rage based uh, Russell Coe flipping into the Hulk or whatever, but, um, you know, that there's, there's vulnerability under the aggression, but, um, there's, yeah, there's more to actually, I'll say he's like physically, he's kind of, it's quite interesting as well. kind of so gaunt, yeah, almost fragile
3: looking. Yeah.
2: he's
4: um,
3: mm. so righteous though, isn't he? With it, he stands tall.
2: He
4: does,
3: When yeah. when, uh, when that woman goes in the back of the ambulance and he's trying to ask... You know, he, he doesn't give a shit, really. Mm. He goes, at what time do you leave? He, He's He's on it. He's on his job. He's very righteous and, and forthright. And even when Bud... He stands up to Bud White. I wouldn't fucking stand up to Bud White. Right. It goes, up.
4: I, I think most blokes um. would be happy to think of themselves as a Bud White, but I, I'd be happy as an Exley with a, spa- a splash of Vincennes. Uh, Vincennes, I think. <laughs> and then... Uh, <laughs> there's one more thing about the character that they they talked about in one of the making of since hansen wanted to file down guy pierce's teeth to give him this clean cut college look uh apparently his teeth weren't straight enough and uh pierce was very skeptical about doing it and they compromised on this set of veneers that's why his teeth are kind of large in in the movie if anyone's uh, noticed yeah. the difference between this and one of his other movies
1: everything about him is clean cut isn't it so like all the uh, again going to costuming but he's got a bit more style and it kind of speaks to bud white's lack of imagination that he's just constantly in in off-color brown uh whereas axley has got a little bit more a little bit more panache or maybe just a bit preppier but i'm surprised matt that you identify or kind of um your allegiances are with well um, i'm very self-righteous actually because well you' are self righteous <laughs> but i didn't have you down as a, as, an, a, as the ultimate opportunist as well like when um and, and this is this is the, the this is what I love about um these characters is that we 're in a noir, so obviously we talked about it in basic instinct, normally, most of the characters are going to be pretty much disgraceful, tend to obviously gravitate towards the the nicer bunch of people in the worst barrel. But with Exley, when he negotiates his position and he and I think uh, Dudley calls him a political animal, mm. Mm. I really turn off the character for quite a large portion until he starts becoming actually. And this is what the film does to you. He starts doing the things that we know as contemptuous and, and wrong. And I somehow then start to think of him as a hero, even though he's the one who, like you said, is killing people indiscriminately.
3: But you can't help but turn to him towards the end because he 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 knows he needs justice, proper justice, not just justice for justice's sake. And there's that great line that he shares with Bud. Bud says, do you want to... I can't remember. I might be paraphrasing. Like, do you want to... This made you. Oh, he's, this yeah, night yeah. made you, do, do you want to tear that down? He goes, yeah, with a wrecking ball. Do you want to help me swing it? That's a great line. That's a great line. It says everything you need to know about him. That is... he He and Bud have turned at that point They they need the answers they know something's wrong and they're moral proper moral guys even we haven't spoken about the third character yet because what a treat we have in this film that we're getting three character studies not just like one or two and Vincennes has I'm going straight to the core of it but he's a flashy guy loves being a part of Hollywood he's a big dick swinging around where you know uh, Exley knows that he very cleverly says to the, the DA and the, and the sergeant that if you take away the show from him that's his weakness. He's already done his homework on him because we know X is very smart and he's right and he gets Vincennes on side but when Vincennes goes back he there's, there's a very very simple scene and I like what Spacey does in this film where his face is so readable of someone who is just fo- deeply full of regret I think the way I read it and when he takes that fifty dollars that he's got from Danny DeVito to to help him get another seedy story, and it, it, he's his morals of just eating him from the inside out, it's very it's very clever what he does with his face. And he leaves that fifty, doesn't drink the drink, and goes to save um, the young budding actor. And I I really I really like what happens with his character because again, we have someone at the beginning is like what a dick we don't really like him, and it's that. Hollywood sensibility and fame and f- almost fortune type thing.
4: Well, his his arc, the, the completion of his arc, is is really satisfying because he he dies right on that moment where he's decided to finally do the right thing, although he's out of practice, as Dudley puts it. Uh, and the death scene is fantastic. They talk about it a little bit in the making of the way the light just goes out of Spacey's eyes. Uh, it's quite a r- remarkable death scene really and there's a little weird detail where he spills a bit of coffee on his hand and he's shaking it off his finger immediately prior to dudley's surprise gunshot and that just you know puts you uh, at ease for a moment and then the gunshot comes out of nowhere and it's it's a really shocking moment when you see it for the first time
0: what's this all about boyo part of it has to do with the murder i've been working with ed exley on it you're a narco jack not homicide since when do you work with Edmund Axley? Well, it's a private investigation. Huh? I messed something up. I'm trying to make amends.
5: Don't start trying to do the right thing, Boyle. You
0: haven't had the practice?
5: Buzz Meeks and Dick Stenzel. Hmm.
0: So, uh... What does it actually make of all this? No, I haven't told him yet. I just came straight from the record.
1: <laughs> oh no, we I totally agree, Matt. I mean, it inspired
3: it's... Steven Spielberg for a similar scene in Minority Report. I think
1: Spielberg has a little bit more style to it. If I remember, there's a long coat that this kind of covers coat, the. the yeah. Oh, this is the von Siddow, uh thing.
4: Colin Farrell's
3: turn yeah Yeah,
1: okay but talking about that that turn scene one of the things that I love about it is the way that um James Cromwell who at this point we just know him as the um you know the earnest and very nurturing farmer from Babe uh you know I I I don't know Devlin I was going to ask you before you revealed that you actually had seen the film before (laughs) whether or not um his turn was telegraphed or not because I do remember seeing this for the first time and thinking I did not see that coming whatsoever. It's partly down to, you know, screen time, but, and, and the fact that we don't really see Dudley all that much outside of what we think he's doing good police work when he's trying to scare off criminals in the, in the Victory Hotel. Right. But it's just the way that the scene is, is set up. He's just making a cup of tea in his robe. And like you said, Kevin Spacey's being very naturalistic in the scene. And, and what they do is they do a little, they almost test you, don't they? He, he, he's he got his back turned, turns around, he's got a cup of tea, gives him the cup of tea, He turns back around again, and you think, well, he's just going to go and grab his cup of tea and turn back around, and that's when the gunshot it's, comes. And, it's uh,
3: a good shot from the oh, hip, isn't it? It's not a bad oh, shot. It's, oh, yes, it's, it's a great little <laughs> uh, reveal. I think the first time I ever saw him, i have been younger and didn't pay much attention to you know, the opening bars of DeVito's character's uh, narrative introduction. Who you know? Could it be these two guys? Are these the guys that are taking over from the mafia or whatever? And you realise it's Dudley. It's, it's a really good like everything comes together in that one scene with Spacey.
4: On the second viewing, you, you can really see how it's all been planted there. It's all there to be to be figured out. So it really does hold up on that second viewing. he questions actually about: Are you really prepared to to shoot a hardened criminal? in the back if it means he's gonna be yeah. put away. And that of course very you know, very poetically ends up happening to him and it's very fitting that he's the one who who said that to him and it happens at the end of the movie.
3: I love that Jack mm-hmm. Vincent mm-hmm. had the mind to say roller Tomasi. It's mm-hmm. a good Oh it's great. A, another it? nice bit of writing
1: and he has a little smile, doesn't he, just before he uh, he fades oh, out. It's very um, good. And and that's when we know he's like this is this'll get you <laughs> yeah. in the end. And you had valediction? Just to go back on to Jack Vincennes, you guys have said, but why Ed Exley, um, some of your favorite characters? I And this is where we're going to maybe talk about uh, some of the problems surrounding Kevin Spacey, the man. But as far as uh, the character, I really like Jack Vincennes. He's actually my favorite character. And his arc is the one that I uh, enjoy the most. And I think it's because he is the one that represents the big larger theme of the film which is the illusion of of hollywood and the access to it you know he is if you were to look at it from a kind of macro level he's like a studio head isn't he you know if you want to be yeah. a part of this you need to um you need to leave your morals at the door step on other people and uh, and this is the price of fame and he represents all of that and what's what's so ironic is the moment he grows a conscience He's dead. He's done, and uh, I just think it's just so wonderfully written and and so wonderfully played out uh, that that that's the one that I really gravitate to, and, and partly also because he's got the least amount of screen time, but still manages to like it. Still hit me emotionally when he gets killed, mm-hmm. but I but I suppose that leads me to ask: uh, Have you guys watched the Kevin Spacey film since twenty seventeen, twenty eighteen, when all the allegations and I've watched
3: Moon. I know it's just his voice, but Moon I watched recently. I've watched Usual Suspects at Christmas.
4: Um, um, yeah, my my girlfriend hadn't seen uh, American Beauty or Seven, so we've watched them fairly recently. Yeah, in, in terms of the art, not the artist thing, uh, and this whole cancel culture thing that's going on, uh, uh, can we really separate art from the artist? And I, I think we'd have to try. You did it a little bit on the last one with the Munchausen podcast with the Gilliam revelations. And I do care what he thinks, but I'm not going to burn my fear and loathing DVD like a, a deep south yeah. religious reactionary, like burning a Beatles record or something. I'm, I'm, but I'm not going to, you know, condone what he's saying either. I'm not, I'm not going to boycott Louis CK or Woody Allen or Polanski because they've all made things that mean something to me and I'm not going to be robbed of something that I've grown to love because the, the person behind it has made a, a pig of himself. And like the other thing to mm. know is that film is a collaborative art and the work of many shouldn't be yeah. uh, undone by the actions of one person.
1: No, I think that, no, I think that's, that's really well put Matt. I mean, uh, I think I'm similar to you and Patrick and I'll find out what Devlin thinks in a second, but I tend to just draw a, a line in the sand Which I kind of already had done with Kevin Spacey prior to the allegations because I remember the moment when I decided that I didn't really want to follow his career anymore. And it was when he did K Packs. Do you remember that one? Where he's uh, (laughs) an alien. Yeah. And he he basically wanted to shift away from being the kind of Hollywood sleaze. And he did Mm. that. And I think he did Pay It Forward, which was even for me, who was a bit of a saccharine uh, lover, found it to be just too sugary sweet. And I just kind isn't of lost Joel interest in, nice in isn't it? it,
3: isn't he? Yeah, well, it,
1: it, Patrick is all very nice. I like and it, Helen like Hunt's Matt's lovely, but it's just... thing <laughs> Yeah, okay.
3: Yeah. Uh,
1: you know what? I'm, I'm just talking about him as a, as a performer. And then I remember seeing the bizarre videos after the allegations that he did in character from uh, House of Cards. And I just thought... This is just so odd. I revisit his old performances because they were all films. You know, he had such a strong run. There was like five or six. Mm.
3: Well, I don't revisit his old performances for him and his old performances. I revisit them because I want to watch the films. Right.
1: It doesn't jar with me at all, but I can respect and understand why people would would choose not to, to go back to watching Star Vehicle, Kevin Spacey films. But certainly in this one, you know, he's in it for very... You know, he's, he's the one out of the three that gets the least amount of screen time, but I think it's a really strong performance considering. And you just have to kind of park the the real man. But I, what about you, Devon? Are you a similar similar sentiment?
2: Was well, I was saying this is my first Kevin Spacey film that I watched since uh, since you know the 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 deluge of, of allegations came out. Um, probably, I guess, like you were saying that. Uh, despite how many high-profile roles that he's done that are, uh, you know, very well-regarded, I'm not sure I like that many of his films that much. Certainly not ones that I haven't already seen and felt massively compelled to go back to. Like, like you said, Pay It Forward and Capex and I don't know, American Beauty, as we've already mentioned, I don't, I don't particularly feel like it would be a film that would hold up especially well this was this was fine i it, at the start it was a little jarring seeing him on screen again um, in terms of like who you know who you kind of continue to 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 indulge their art based on their personalities or, or things that they've done or or uh, uh, things that they've been accused of doing i think there's never really a hard and fast rule on it i also think this is quite a different situation than we had uh, last time out with Terry Gilliam which is a, a an, an old man saying some some ill judged and very um uh, uh ill thought out and, and quite hurtful but but not harmful things whereas you mm-hmm. know this is a guy who's been accused of some fairly serious uh you know crimes and as he said has decided to defend himself in some truly fucking bizarre ways publicly by kind of relying on his cachet and goodwill as an actor to try and convince people that you know this is some grand plot against him um but as very quickly because he's a good actor very quickly um you become invested in the character not the man playing him yeah Mm. um so it's it's a it's an odd one it's an odd one and it's kind of difficult it's it's All of these cases are going to be very, very different. I know Matt, when you mentioned like, you know, the cases of like Louis C.K. and and Woody Allen, like, Mm. I've, I've must admit I haven't found any particular compulsion to revisit any Woody Allen films in the last few years, just because I I, I feel like, um, you know, just it it hasn't felt like a, like a compulsion that that I've had. And, um, I, I haven't kind of, questioned it any more than that other than if you don't feel like watching it then i guess you don't watch
4: it it's strange isn't it there's there's levels to it and it's also who you like more like if you're not a woody allen fan then it's very easy and if you if you just adore everything that louis ck's done and he's like you know one of the in my eyes one of the great stand-ups of all time and and i love this show and uh you know it's that's a really hard one to take for me but i i'm trying to detach it because
2: i guess In some ways, the the problem with with Louis C.K. is that because so much of his work was so um, confessional Mm. or, you know, he's dredging up kind of these, he would dredge up and give voice to these terrible thoughts and concepts because maybe it was like a catharsis or something. But when, you know, it's that in itself has has now taken on a very different tenor for me, I guess. It's, uh, yeah,
4: it's a strange We one. shouldn't tar them all with the same brush because every allegation is completely yeah. different. And also, we don't know who did what and who didn't yeah, do what. And It's like I made a, uh, an 80s yeah. playlist the other day and I had to put Michael Jackson in it because it's an 80s playlist. What am mm-hmm. I supposed to do? Like-
3: Recently, there was there was a uproar about um, Gary Gliss's song in Joker. Right. And, as well, and people yeah. were annoyed about that. Well, he's still alive getting royalties, royalties from that. That's another Royalties thing. to him, yeah. Do, do you think, I don't know, I... I figured that if the director found a piece of music that thought the film needed and wanted and, and suited, it was kind of, I I was, when I was reading the article, I was kind of going along with that.
4: His reasoning was different. I think they play that song at uh, like American football games. I think Devon will know more than. They do. Yeah. And that's, Very the, frequently. that's the reason why, uh, what's the hangover chap called? Uh, Todd, Todd Phillips. Phillips. Hmm. Todd Phillips. That's the reason why he, he, used it, and he was trying to subvert something there, that's what I heard, he actually had nothing to do he had no knowledge of Gary Glitter
2: or or any of his uh, allegations at all. I guess, yeah, mm-hmm. Gary Glitter is kind of a, you know he's he was a British phenomenon and I guess the, the story of, you know the story that broke around him was probably a far bigger deal for us than it would be for, for uh, Americans mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, that one, that, that, that example is a strange one because um, we we kind of know what kind of licensing you need to go through in order to get a, a piece of music in a film, um, and there's music supervisors and there's music advisors that come onto these different projects for the studios. So I, I find it difficult to believe that um, that no one knew. But at the same time, like you said, it's it's a piece of art. No matter what you think of Joker or any of these films, and if if it's uh, if it's a choice a creative choice, then you kind of have to try and respect and, and take the word of uh, the visionaries uh, and the creators to, to say that their their intentions were not to be confrontational, but was to uh, elevate or um, e- exemplify something that they were trying to extract from the audience at that moment. And that's how you've got to take it. Like on a much more kind of
2: simple way, is just because he wanted to and he, and he, want, and he wasn't asked <laughs> He wanted to use it and he wasn't particularly bothered.
4: Well, I found one extra little um, pretentious postmodern school of thought thing, but perhaps it's bollocks, but I'll, I'll try it. Uh, Roland Barthes um, posed in the 1960s mm. that the, the reader or the viewer, the audience creates the text, not the author. And the author has actually no final say on the interpretation or the true meaning of the piece. So, Uh, we are kind of co-creators in that sense. And we're not actually at the mercy of the writer, director, actor, musician, or painter or whoever it may be. Once that piece is created, like we are at least co-owners and it belongs to us. So uh, it's, Mm. you know, depending on who this is, I know Spacey didn't write this movie and he's, but his performance is a, a key, a key part of it. Uh, it's like the George Lucas thing. It's like he took away the original Star Wars from us. It wasn't his to remove. Once that's been nominated for Oscars and it's been in cinemas that belongs to people yeah. and it doesn't belong to him uh, anymore, you know and to deny people, yeah no uh, it that is the height of narcissism and it. It shows like a, a misunderstanding, I think, of what it what it means to be a creative person. You're making art for for other people, so uh I don't know. I was a bit, yeah. that was kind of a muddled way of expressing it, but there's uh, there's another school of thought on it.
1: So we've already mentioned it before. Uh, Kim Basinger, who uh, won Academy Award, I think, surprisingly uh, for Best Supporting Actress. Is it
3: Basinger or Basinger? Oh, I he
1: don't needs know. Basinger. Tomato. I when I was I growing up, it oh, yeah, was
4: Basinger. And then the Ooh. Americans say Basinger. Mm. So I've gone with Basinger ever since I heard them pronounce it's, it.
2: I think it's Basinger because
1: of the Simpsons episodes. Mm. <laughs> when she crashed. into like, well, Alec Baldwin and Kim Basinger. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Honestly, with Kim Basinger, Batman, Simpsons, Wayne's World 2. That's really yeah, my, 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 yeah. Because honestly, <laughs> that is my that is the extent of my knowledge. Of, I'm going to be of, frank. Of her back catalogue of work, like oh, i not the, seen, and the Alec Basie. Baldwin. Oh no! Yeah, the getaway, of course. Yeah, I do, yeah. I do remember that one. But because she went up against Julianne Moore and Boogie Nights for the supporting actress award. Um, but but what do we think? I think Julianne
4: Moore edges it for me. Uh, there's there's that scene where she watches Dirk Diggler. Dive into the pool, and Lonely Boy is playing, and there's some other great stuff she does in Boogie Nights. But you know, I, I understand their choice, but I don't think Moore has has that iconic old school beauty that Basinger brings to Lynn Bracken. But uh, I I do think it's like you're saying that I, I you only know Basinger for a few things, and it's really cool that she won something of this magnitude like, in her career. Uh, but I don't know her against Amber Waves. I, I think I'm going to have to go with.
2: Julianne Moore, I think she edges it. Just yeah, I I think um, Julianne Moore in *Boogie Nights* is fantastic, and it's she has given a lot more to do. Yeah, and there's there's more for her to play. Um, I think Kim Basinger's performance is good. Um, Like (laughs) it's good in 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 parts. I think there's so as I say, I, I only I only really watched this once, and I'm quite new to it. And I'm not a huge, um, uh, I'm not hugely into like film noir in general. I don't don't dislike it, but it's just not something that I've ever really dug into massively. And it's certainly not the more classic type. I do prefer Mm. the, you know, the, the the Shane Black kind of spin on it, the kind of kiss, kiss, bang, bang, undercutting the. Well, you also
1: enjoyed the sexy time in Basic Instinct, Evelyn. Right. Yeah, we <laughs> try to say
2: it. <laughs> um, so I, I, I like, but but what that comes along with is a, a particular type of um, interaction, especially between men and women within these films, where it's all very heightened, and it's all um, heightened to the point where character motivations can become kind of not inscrutable or perhaps less easy to um, to relate to. So. For example, the scene where Ed Exley goes to see Kim Basinger, mm. and it turns out that Danny DeVito is in a is in a cupboard with a two way mirror, <laughs> which is which is a great concept. And if they could spin that out to a television show, Danny DeVito's in a cupboard. <laughs> I'd, I'd watch every episode. Uh. Um, Exley's in inextricable draw towards her. Mm. Um, against the grain of the logic of the film and of what we know of him so far as a person doesn't make much sense because she plays that scene. So flat and reserved. Mm-hmm. Similarly, uh, similarly, like the devotion that, um, uh, uh, Russell Crowe immediately kind of, uh, shows her. Um, I, I don't know it, it, it doesn't seem balanced she's taunting him isn't she with with
4: the um why she likes bud over him and that competitive competitive thing between the two of them draws him to kind of make the move Mm. on it but i i agree with it it, it's like it came out of of nowhere almost uh as far as the Exley Mm. character but you know then again he's prepared to do anything for for the results so i yeah I
0: i see bud because i want to
1: I see Bud because he can't hide the good inside of him. I see Bud because he makes me
0: feel like Lynn Bracken and not some Veronica-like lookalike who fucks for money.
1: I see Bud because he doesn't know how to disguise who he is. I see Bud for all the ways he's
0: different from you. Don't underestimate me, Miss Bracken the way you've underestimated Bud White
5: (laughs) fucking me and fucking Bud aren't the same thing you know
0: stop talking about Bud White
1: Oh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna challenge both of you on this one. I, I thought it made complete sense. You know, at this point in the film, he's unraveling as a character, right? Mm. So it would start, he's all, he's all control. He's all sort of a bit like Bud in a way. It's all building up inside. And you said it before, it's all internal. And then I think she just represents something that he's like, I've been repressing this and now I'm going to start engaging in the more kind of primal instincts i.e you know shoot shoot bang bang and yeah. sex and i think that's what she that's what she brings out of him does kim basinger sell that mm. well a lot of her performance is in the way that she looks but she does represent like a key theme in the film like she is she is what we all know to be what most people experience when they go to hollywood right it's uh it's a full of broken dreams and unfulfilled promises you know she goes out there from some small midwestern town uh seeking whatever there's, she's there's seeking.
3: a key to the character for me uh which while i'll i'll fight galley's corner over you two because i can't remember the line but there's something like <laughs> that bud sees her for who she is rather than for veronica lake which everyone else sees mm-hmm. And he sees her as Veronica Lake and he desires her. This is the fleur-de-lis thing and the thing. And I do think she's sufficiently seductive in that scene because she stands right close in his face and she makes him look at her lips and she, she's, well, A, she's been instructed to do so because Tobito's waiting in the cupboard. But I I, I will, I am on Gally's side here that, like, it, it does make sense because of he knows what she is, and why he's given into it because he knows he can have it. For he's me, he, he's,
4: he's thinking more about Bud than he is about her, though. It, is that not?
3: Oh, possibly. Exactly. Yeah, not it possibly is. But well, he also, does say stop talking he about Bud <laughs> instinct. Yeah,
4: he yeah, does. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. It, it gets to him. The taunts
3: are what gets. To
1: him. Yeah, they are. That's the, that. That kind of what triggers it, and it then it becomes this almost. Um, I mean, it's almost like a parody of like passion when they're just like, oh, but the um, her performance. (laughs) You're right. She she's given a little, a little less, uh, a little less to do than uh, than Julianne Moore in in Boogie Nights. Yeah, I think I think when it comes down to like the Academy, and I'm not going to get into the politics of these things, but the fact that she is so re yeah classic Hollywood look and the way that she kind of the way that she holds herself in the film. Well, that opening yeah. scene that that scene where we first see her she's almost
4: nun-like in that kind of strange dress and that that's become a very mm. uh, iconic look and uh, when she's buying the liquor in the in the liquor
3: store and let's let's go back to the post as wow, well she's front and center mm-hmm.
1: she's she's girl i do think that people were probably a little bit more in love with what she represents than maybe what she's um you know the, the performance that she's she's given but you know i think it's a strong performance um whether or not it was right or wrong who you know who am i to say but but I, I know which one i prefer and it is julianne moore in boogie nights but that is probably down to the fact that she's got way more to do in that film than than kim Basinger during this yeah, but she's uh, she's a pivotal part of the story she really is she, she's the the fulcrum of which you know Forget about Vincennes for the, for a minute. You know the Bud White Ed Exley Buddy Cop show is all predicated around the conflict between between them over her, and it's uh, it's great. And when when Bud White goes nuts and finds Ed Exley in the records room, I mean the power of that scene comes from the fact that we know how much he loves her, and we've only had a few scenes to see that, and that has to come from her as well as Russell Crowe. So that's where. That's where I lie with her performance. I think she's she is strong. She gets one of the gets a really good line.
3: I think she delivers very well at the very end of the film as well. Um, a very memorable line. Uh, which is, some men get everything, others get uh, an ex hooker in Arizona. And a trip to Arizona. A trip, yeah, which is a zinger of a last line, and you know it, it arcs back to classic Hollywood um, noir. Dialogue and and I, I really like the writing of the dialogue in this film. I think there's, some of it's very memorable, and I, I think she delivers those zingers really well because that's what a character is based on. It's someone who who has to deliver these lines of um, I, I don't know, has to spin a yarn with, with her clients and everything, and I buy that with basing a, a lot.
4: And you're only as strong as the people around you too. And they, they really, it really helps to have such amazing actors around her. And Boogie Nights is similar. You've got some great performances there mm-hmm. too, but very different. But um here, I think that the people around her really lift, lift basing her above anything else. She's And I think, done.
3: I think that shows Matt when, cause she goes back with Hanson for eight mile years mm-hmm. later. And I don't think she's, as surrounded or has that good a character. I don't think she's as good in that film. No. Uh, I think, I think her, uh, she's a lot flatter and hey, who's, he, I think, I think Eminem's very, very good in that film for, for a debut kind of acting, but, um, I think something doesn't work about her in that film as it does in this film for me. And I think, um, she's arguably given more to do in Eight Mile and that might be where the problem is. I, I don't know.
2: Mm. Mm. Maybe the the characters just not drawn with as as much kind of um, I don't know uh, uh, empathy. Like okay. Am, Amber Amber Waves is a is a character who the film is hugely empathetic with. Uh, the, the film around Julianne Moore understands like the kind of heartbreak that is at the core of her character. La Confidential, she's more of an icon, yeah, than a than a character. She's the you know. The hooker with a heart of gold, the damsel in distress, the you know the the fading UE who's you know just looking for love, and there's there's a lot of archetypes you can throw at it. But also, you know, the, she is a sympathetic character. Whereas um, I, I got the impression in Eight Mile that the film saw her as somewhat of an antagonist or a roadblock to Eminem's character. Which, yeah. Yeah. What we know of him and his music and the way he talks about her in it would suggest that that's possibly how he sees her.
1: Yeah. No, I think you're probably right yeah. there, Devlin. And I, I, I'm going to be a little bit controversial here because I know that one of you at least is going to is going to jump right down my neck. Um, as much as I love Danny DeVito, and there are some strong scenes with Danny DeVito in this. Hold build. on. Hold on. Hold on. Where are you oh, going?
3: No. With
1: I, if I could do one thing, if I could go back in time, not to get straight into my sandwich box and, and open them up, um, I would tell Danny DeVito in certain scenes, in one in particular, to just dial it down a touch. He, he goes a little bit Bugsy Malone, um, especially <laughs> during the, um, the the interrogation scene when he's like, uh, I can't remember what the line is. Like, it's all an act. That's hype. the whole point of it. It's a I know, but it's yeah. I know I, I found it to be the one bit, so everything feels really authentic. And then it, every now and again, Danny DeVito I think plays scumbag better than anybody. You know, God, do I love twins and love him in twins, and I'm always rooting for him. It's one of the key things that Danny DeVito does. Uh, you know, in Taxi, he's a, basically an asshole character, but you kind of love him, and it's not just because he's you know. I don't know if you guys Matilda watch, uh, as well. In-
2: in, in Philadelphia, does
1: anyone watch Always Sunny in Philadelphia? Yeah, um, I've, I've, I've in, started which, watching it since you recommended it. In which he is fucking magnificent. He and is, and I'm not. I'm not demigrating him as a as a performer, but in this, but that he just scene, feels I don't. I don't. i I'm, I've dropped down
3: your neck, and I've said it. I'll say it again. <laughs> that scene. The, the whole point of that scene is it's an act, and he he's playing up to it. So of course,
1: there's a couple of bits. When he's when he's talking with uh Vincennes uh with the actor who's now like the mentalist. Like, I don't know the actor's name, f- forgive me. Yeah. Uh, but he's now become a big thing. Matt Baker's the character's name. And he's from, talking from about the D.A. D.A. Prada. And, yes, yeah. He's um he there's just a couple of times where I'm like the delivery feels a bit Dick Tracy and Bugsy Maloney, and it's a bit like uh, Ah, back in Mad just, mm. just it it feels a little bit too Noir, kinda, of, almost pastiche. That's all, mm. that's all I'm saying. I think in the overall, he's stronger <laughs> when he gets killed.
2: Do you think, um, that, so that he's a little more cartoon and everything else is... Yeah,
1: he's just a little bit more caricature He's like the rabbit from Last Action Hero. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, not, uh, it's a uh, cartoon cat yeah. is what he is. He's the, cat. 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 He yeah, is the, the cartoon, cartoon cat.
0: cartoon yeah. Good to see you back, Have a hanging, sir. Down around my ankles. <laughs> tight with the DA, Jackie?
2: Oh, yeah. yeah. You know, he tried to throw me off the force last Christmas as a little joke.
0: How about some payback, big time? Plus the usual $50 donation to the Jack Vincennes Retirement Fund. Did you know the DA was a swish? No kidding. Jerry Mulligan with Chet Baker! Remember Matt Reynolds, Christmas Eve, the movie premiere Pot Bust? He just got off the honor phone.
2: What's he doing here?
0: Reynolds is AC deucy not to mention broke. I'm getting him to fuck the DA for a hundred bucks. That's twice the fifty you got for wrecking his career.
4: I think he's used sparingly enough to to get away with it. He, he, yeah, I agree. He, he's not he's not doing it too often. I get what
3: you're saying, but it's not a problem. So shut up. <laughs> get back in your two way cupboard. <laughs> Okay.
1: So... <laughs> no, but that was that was that was that was really it as far as um, as far as like not a nitpick but something that was like oh, if I could just maybe go back and say dial it down just like two notches but um... I thought it
2: made for a more shocking revelation when he gets you know yeah when, when he gets uh, yeah. offed. Can can we go back to the Academy
4: Awards for a second do, do yeah, wanna, yeah. No, do you want to finish a Devito? Have you got anything else on Devito?
1: No, no. I'm done. I've been very much put back in the sandwich <laughs> yes. box. Okay. Well, it was
4: it was, a, it was a, a really strong year, '98, and here are some of the films that were up. It was uh, Boogie Nights, Good Will Hunting, Jackie Brown, Donnie Brasco, As Good as It Gets, and then some others. Obviously, Titanic and L.A. Confidential. And then they've also got and the Full Monty, uh, the Full Monty, Wag the Dog, Amistad, and Kundun. They were all in the same year, and hmm. I, I know you know Amistad and Kundun aren't, haven't aged particularly well, but you know you can see those kinds of films winning Oscars. So you know it, it's a really uh, strong bunch for that year.
3: Amistad hasn't aged well. I haven't seen it in such a long time.
4: Well, I I, I never particularly liked it, but I, I feel like it's a kind of film that would potentially win Oscars along with Kundun, but uh, I, it's not not my favourite Spielberg.
2: It's it feels very much like um, like we. I think we've mentioned this a couple of times. Uh, clumsy but well meaning. Mm. It's it's not going to age well because the way it treats a very, very, very sensitive subject. Yes. Uh, you know, it's still like older white male director deigns to tell us how bad slavery was. Mm. That's the sort of thing that, you know, has very quickly not.
3: Was it before or after the color
2: purple? Uh,
1: after. Uh, well, it was after. After, yeah.
4: 80 oh, yeah, it after. something. It's quite recent. Yeah. Even the old rose was nominated. I mean, it's crazy. For titanic and you know oh, well. the, the, yeah, the idea was. that that monstrosity deserved anything over la confidential other than perhaps visual
1: effects you know oh is... matt okay well guess yeah matt guess who's <laughs> not on. getting invited to the titanic rewind episode oh please <laughs> I,
4: I don't I, even I know did. if i could listen to it if, if you did one.
1: The, and, and I wouldn't have
4: even given it the visual effects. I'd have given that to the Lost World, Jurassic Park, which was, you know, which had T-Rexes in it. So I'd, I'd give it to that.
1: Oh man. And oh wow. We have got ourselves a controversial episode coming soon. Wow.
4: I've got a, a thing about, um, it's, it's, it's a shame. Like I watched back on YouTube, some of the, the Oscar moments when they're awarded and it's a real shame that Curtis Hansen had to endure. Uh, James Cameron's King of the World buffoonery. I think I felt really sorry for him. <laughs> like it, it, It's like, it, it was just really ostentatious for him to get up there. And, uh, you know, I, I didn't even believe that he believes he's the King of the World in that moment. If you watch it, it's like a half-hearted kind of thing where he says, I'm the King of the World, woo. And I, I never really quite believed that he believed it. I think it's just something he'd planned in his big head. Like in his big bathroom. <laughs> and, but I, I, I love the Terminator. I love the Terminator films. And I love aliens though. So I'm, I'm kind of, I'm cool with him, but there, there's like a moment, like maybe I've fictionalized this, but if you watch the Oscar clip of Cameron winning and you can see all of the other directors in their little TV boxes reacting to it, that there's a, like, uh, Hansen has this plastered on grin, like he kind of knows what's going to happen. But as it's read out that Cameron's won, uh, of all people, like Dustin Hoffman appears behind him and taps him on his shoulder as if to say, I know, mate, but you have to clap now. And then Hansen kind of <laughs> bursts into this kind of slightly wow. delayed clap. And uh, he's got this very um, strange kind of smile on his face. And I, I think he knew it was going to go to Cameron, but he also knew that that was his best shot at winning. And, uh, mm. you know, I, I just feel bad because he died, um, Curtis Hansen. He died age 71 in 2016. And I do feel like this is his highest point as a filmmaker. Um, and it's, it's a shame that he didn't get it.
1: No, I totally agree. I, what I will say is, um, this, this show has taken a harder left turn, that had it actually happened for real during the night non- of the Titanic, they wouldn't have hit the iceberg. <laughs> I was not expecting that, that kind of bitch Sorry, did I, did I go on a, But it's okay, Matt. It, no, it's okay. Uh, all I, all I know is that we are definitely going to schedule Titanic, uh, very soon. Yeah. So, um, so yeah. I'm going to write
3: in, in on Twitter him? to rewind that we review Titanic <laughs> anonymously. Oh. And wow! Then, okay. you
4: and and Pierce and Crow and Spacey were not even nominated. They weren't oh, no. even nominated.
3: Well, they're, 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 they're I'm amazed, actually. I suppose though they were unknowns. Wow. Yeah,
1: amazing. they were unknowns. And 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 joking aside, uh, everyone who has um, has listened to me and Devlin and the Pull in Focus episode we did on Wonder Boys will know that I've um, I've got a bit of a deep seated love for Curtis Hanson. I uh, kind of came to his films later on but I'd seen all of them without even realizing who the director was. So, you know, the hammer yeah. rocks, yeah. the cradle, the yeah. river wild, which is yeah. such a great, yeah. like it's nuts and bolts thriller
2: with a fantastic,
1: uh, David stratham
2: Yeah. Yes, yeah. indeed.
1: And, and, you know, they, and they bring him in this, and 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 for those of you that have never seen him, you know the ultimate bad guy in the Born Ultimatum. You know you re- immediately recognise his voice, very distinctive. He likes Ed
3: whites. Egg whites.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, he does <laughs> like egg whites. Um I loved him in um, Good Night and Yeah. Jesus, uh, oh, uh, what's Goodnight, it called good Jesus, Goodnight, Goodnight, and Goodnight, Good Night, good, good Luck. luck. Good Night and Good Luck. He's great. He that won
3: was
1: the Oscar so for that. Good in that. Yeah, and he shags Tony Soprano's wife as well. <laughs> he he's a very brave man. <laughs> <laughs> he does. Oh, man. That is such a great episode of The Sopranos. Oh, wow. <laughs> but yeah, yeah he—he's um, just one of those actors that you um, immediately recognise, and whatever he's in, you know he's going to deliver. And he—he's he, he's in. I think uh, if you watch the making of, I think he said he'd only uh, shot for about four or five days in total in the whole film. But he's uh he's like a character that lurks in the background and it's perfect for the character because again, he's one of those in the background puppet master characters, you know, the the whole um, Fleur de lis as a way of um being able to blackmail high um authority figures within the system. It's just great. It's um I, mm. I just yeah, David Strathern. But, but but going back to Curtis Hansen, what I love about this film is and what I've loved about all of his direction is it's all about performance it's all about the actors he doesn't really ever care about doing anything particularly flashy or um you know sort of crazy or zany with the camera it's going to be what is what's the thing that's going to be that's going to elevate the performance the best
3: I think we've got to say though of this film like because he's co-written at the screenplay with Helgeland as well there's there's credit there because you know y- yes it's for the I, I agree with you, what you said in performance with the actors, but I mean, he's written the screenplay here as well. And I think there's credit there also. Mm-hmm. Oh
1: no, no, don't totally. I'm just saying as a director, cause he's, he's a, he's, Sorry. A, he's yeah. a strange one. If you look at his career, like he, he darts into genre film. And then clearly I said it earlier, you know, this was a labor of love and, um, and he was such the right man to helmet because his affinity and love for the era it's just oozing off everything, isn't it? The needle drop songs are all songs that I'd never heard of, but they really do give you that sense of time and place. And what I
3: love about uncovering a bit of his past when he was a kid, his uncle owned a costume shop or clothes shop in Hollywood, and they'd often rent to like Audrey Hepburn and mm. Marilyn Monroe, and he'd rub shoulders with them when he was a kid. So I really like that he. I think you can tell he's got that love for Hollywood
5: mm-hmm. in
3: here, but he's also got that knowledge of LA. So, what I really like about the direction and the the vision of this film is we get the, you know, we get the the victimization of, of African Americans in it, which is contextual. It's obviously that's in the written piece as well as the way he's done it, but the settings, the houses, the the, the surroundings, but then the costumes. He obviously has a, a love and a knowledge because. The Lee people. Um, who's the one that actually uh, mistakens? You know the, the way she looks and the setting. Lana of Turner. Lorna Turner, Turner, who
1: is um, Brenda back from Under Siege to <laughs> Under Siege Two: Colon got Territory. Really. <laughs> but the way, the it, way yeah. she
3: looks and that, that bar with all the pictures of all the Hollywood stars in in there, you can imagine his uncle's shop having that. I think there's a lot of great detail. That he he'd have brought to this with that knowledge, I, I do like the representation of LA that I feel has come from his his um, direction in here.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I'm and I'm totally with Matt. I think he should have won the the Oscar for Best Director. You know, I, I, we'll save our thoughts on Titanic for that explosive episode. <laughs> the um, okay. yeah, I I'll think um, the rest of I my thoughts. It's, it's ha- on no, it's okay, but it's it's hands down. Um, you know, this is his. This is his. Um, you know, this is his best. His best work, and mm. uh, such a such a shame that he died when he did. Because I think I would have loved to have seen him do, a, a, you know, try and, and make another L.A. Confidential. Eight Mile was hugely successful, but I think it's kind of dated quite badly. Um, along with Eminem, that's ah, M. it's, all right, no, it's um, okay.
3: Eight
1: Mile, yeah, it's he, all right. He had, he had yeah. that ten-year run. That ten
4: year run from ninety two to two thousand and two was was terrific, and I think he had some more good films in him so it is a it is a shame
3: it looks good the film as well doesn't it um i I noticed last night uh, there are moments of proper noir in it like it was a moment where bud white walks into a well placed light to light his eyes as he's eyeing up the scene and mm-hmm. but you never go full noir in this film I think it's a really nice looking film that Breathes the 50s and I think really looks of its time, which is very good. But no, not at all. Not at all. And it's just the little details. It's the the, the correct cars. There's a great shot when he pulls up to the Night Owl where there's neon lights reflected in the car window and the cinema there. And mm. I, all, I believe in all of it, but it's not, it, it's a nicely shot film. It's not uh, drenched in shadow or, you know, got, gone over the top, which apparently. They they were trying to do a TV series and pilot after this, which apparently did suffer from trying too hard. With Keifer well,
4: Sutherland, yeah, I I did watch the first episode on YouTube or at least some of it, and it, it's it, I wouldn't bother. It, it's really it, right. it's really noirish, but um, the the thing I noticed was the stylistic lighting. You can you can see immediately that they're going for that. Um, yeah. that high contrast kind of stylistic lighting, everything yeah. in, in LA confidential is motivated that the probably the most stylistic thing, uh, is in one of my favorite scenes, the, the final shootout at the Victory uh, Motel, yeah. uh, the bullet holes in the, in the walls and the, yeah. the headlights streaming in, but the
3: headlights, yeah. even the though headlights that looks look
4: stylistic, it, it's, it's motivated and it, it, it fits.
3: I think the most motivated yeah. lighting I saw was in her house when Bud goes there. I think there's, there's like an orange glow to the room, and mm. that's a very—it's um, mm. almost screams of red light district type lighting. That right. The suggestion. of um, it also had
2: that kind of um, like very golden sunset. Yeah, yeah. Of, uh, look, which um, makes sense because uh, Dante Spinotti also worked very famously a lot with Michael Mann. Mm. Okay. So. Yeah. Uh, yeah, he loves, loves that kind of thing. Well, they cool.
4: could be my two favorite shootouts ever. The, the shootout in heat and the, the shootout at the end of LA confidential, which mm. is both incredible. The way that, that yeah. you know, there's bullets flying everywhere, but everything is justified. Every, every reload, I'm sure if you went and counted the, the rounds that went off, it would be yeah. pretty much spot on. It, it feels really, yeah. Yeah. really well done.
2: There's a real clarity to it, isn't there? There's like the, in terms of the way the, the action yeah. is, is chaotic and it feels like you're in the middle of something, but you understand. That's the
1: best thing, Devlin, right? Mm. I mean, this is, you know, I've been complimenting Hanson on his direction and not really giving an example. Well, the mm. shootout is my, my favorite example. Yeah. You never, you never leave the characters at all. You're with them in their perspective, and it's a siege in that room. I and mean, I assume it would probably down to budget, maybe, but also it's a stylistic choice of, no, we're never going to leave Bud and Ed. So we never really get a sense of how many uh, how many sort of enemies are yeah. coming in. But you never leave it. We never go outside to see Dudley and the gang attacking. It's just from their perspective, yeah. Yeah. and it makes like it a, more um, intense. Well, it's like a
2: Howard Hawks type thing. Mm. Um, yeah, which, exactly, which yeah, Carpenter would would pull from a lot, especially something like Assault on Precinct 13, where you're trapped inside this space and you you never know if you're safe because you don't know how many more uh, are
4: coming out. Well, there was something quite cool with the headlights appearing. Uh, as they're waiting outside and the headlights of the cars start appearing, I counted four cars. And there's a lot in the movie about two-man teams of hitmen. So you kind of yes. assume that there's two in each car. And then after they kind of dispatch of, uh, I guess it's the eight, the eight guys. I didn't count it. Uh, you think it's all over and then Dudley arrives and, uh, you know, he's, uh, they're out of ammo almost anyway, I think. And then Dudley comes in and kind of finishes, finishes off Bud. At least we think he does. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, the, there's a, there's a thing with the ending there as well that I, I could maybe mention now that what do you, did anyone think it would have been stronger for the film to end? immediately after Exley blows Dudley away and then uh, there's the line about um, uh, hold up your badge so they know you're a policeman and it's it's as if uh, Exley can't take that this guy uh, might just get away with it I don't know what he would have to say to get out of that uh, scenario but um, he just doesn't want to take the chance and then Exley blows him away and then holds up his badge as the cops arrive. Is there any way that the, the movie could have ended there and come in at maybe two hours rather than two hours 10 or two hours 15?
2: What I, what I liked about the ending that they had was that um, you have such a strange kind of ambiguous conclusion for Exley's character, which is that, you know, ever the political animal. Yeah. He is, even though he has killed the, the, the captain, him. Mm. He allows him to be valorized in death in order for himself to be elevated. And it's a, it's a compromise, which I, I kind of read it as if it's very possible that this is the first compromise on a series of compromises, which over the course of the rest of his career, in the the film, he's a very young man,
1: 30, 31, something. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Something like that. I mean, is that, they say he's first. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Is that not the first time when he allows his kind of his smarts to, to To turn a blind eye to something in order for the greater good, you know, maybe
1: Well, it, that, and it, it's the evolution bit. of the character yeah. right, Devlin? Yeah, so yeah. at the beginning yeah. of the film, he completely rejects the idea of doing that, you know it's it's it's, it's Dudley saying it, asking it to him, hmm. and then it's almost as if he recognize he, he sees himself in Dudley, at that in that moment when yeah. Dudley says don't worry, boyo, just show, you know because you know, he's got rid of Bud White who only sees things in black and white he knows that Axley is smarter than that. Yeah. And, is, and like you said, is a political animal, but he almost rejects it because it's like, well, the he one has, thing I've learned on this journey is yeah. that there can't be two of us in the same room yeah. and he takes well, him out. He,
2: he says he's going to take a wrecking ball to it and that's what they're doing with the, um, with the, you know, the, the investigation and actually pursuing them. Hmm. But it's, it's afterwards that he allows the facade to continue. Which I find really interesting,
1: and and it's the, is it the major whoever the main guy is she, she throws him a look, doesn't he, when he gives him the medal? Like yeah. I know what you did, even yeah. if uh, yeah, it's just it's just. But it speaks to the again, it speaks to the the moral compromises that are happening within this systematic mm. uh, corruption that goes all the way to the top of every pillar within LA. So within yeah. the studio system, within the police force, within the even within the drug racketeering business. Everyone is doing these side deals and shady deals and stepping on each other all to get ahead to, you know, keep the dream alive. The one thing that did surprise me about the ending was that Russell Crowe's Bud White was alive at the end. I mean, I guess it's the classic cinema thing where we don't actually see him, you know, we don't see his eyes open dead yeah. to it's the Fargo bullet. He was shot in the mouth. The Fargo
4: gunshot of going yeah. through the through the cheek and out the other cheek. I guess. Yeah. <laughs> the first time I'd ever seen that done. I thought if you get shot in the head, you're dead. But you know, not in a Coen Brothers movie. So di- did you did you like seeing uh, Bud alive again and Bud with the girl and uh, and and how did you feel about Exley's uh, uh, interview that basically outlines the entire plot for the audience at the end? Or do you think it could have ended on him? holding up his badge
3: no i think we needed to see him outsmart them uh, I, I agree with what was saying. I, I really liked that his characters come about turn and mm-hmm. fully we, we've we've reached the end of his story quite succinctly and quite it's the smile the smile at the end that's a big payoff for me and i really enjoyed that because he's won yeah in, in, in a way uh, by not only has he won, he's grown up and he's understood things. Maybe he's understood more things about his father and how his father got there. And there's a lot to read about his character, but that is a complete development, um uh, like sign off at the end. And It I'm clarifies like
4: certain things. Yeah. I, I just found a lot of strength in that, in that final image of him holding up the badge. Uh, and it felt as if the, the way the camera was moving into him, that that could have been the final, final image. It's a very po- poetic, Powerful way to kind of bow out, but I was kind of torn because I do like the clarification too, and I do like seeing Bud alive
2: again.
3: Yeah, it does. It is a little Hollywood, which the film is about Hollywood in a way as well. And you know, we've got.
2: Well, I don't know. I don't know whether I would call it a story because I think um, it feels like more of a more of like a, a kind of Chinatown esque gut punch. Like I say, that I I see the um him allowing. The, the good name of Chief Dudley to go ahead as like as a as a, a compromise, like a you know that we might be setting this character off on a on a path towards
1: being, being Dudley. Yeah, kind
2: of like being able to live with the sort of the, the compromise. So if you live with one compromise you can live with another and you can live with another and that's how you end up with no real change ever being affected. He could have taken a wrecking ball to the entire corrupt system and he chose not to um and and i don't know um but yeah i did think that maybe the the reappearance of bud white as as nice as it is was a little wild (laughs) i I didn't see it coming and i the, 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 the shout that went up in our living room was, really?
3: There is a thing from the the author of the book and he was annoyed that Dudley was shot and dead because he, he believes that evil survives and would have mm. rather he, he survived throughout it, which I don't, I think for a six, I think for a beginning to end film to, to, to close the story, I think Dudley had to die in a way to, to give, uh, actually that story, complete story. I may, I don't know, maybe there's an underlying evil that's growing in him, you know, cause he has changed his, his morals and compromised a little bit. I thought it was very interesting that Bud White, you know, like for, for an actor, of course there were small, unknown actors at the time, but I imagine if that was a spacey, uh, a bigger actor, Oscar winning actor at the time, maybe would have got some dialogue at the time. You know, he, he has, he has no dialogue cause he's obviously been shot in the jaw and, and uh, d- dumb for the time being, but, I thought that was quite interesting. I wondered if that would happen with later period Crow when he's a bigger star. You know, to give, given no dialogue at the end is your final shot. But basically it delivers hers very well. And I, there is, there is that thought that those two come into it at the end for the sake of them coming in. I, Matt, I would have been happier had it been Exley's story to, to close upon the film.
1: I will ask you for your summaries. I will go around the table, but we will ask the person who does not remember if you ever watch his (laughs) films ever. Devlin.
2: it's As I said, it's one of those films that, if it passed you by, it was a bit ubiquitous. Most people did probably catch it first time around. And it's it's not one that I, I would have thought to ever watch under my own steam, really. It just would have got filed away with a bunch of other 19s films that are generally well-regarded, but there are just too many films to watch these days. But I'm, I am very glad that, uh, that I took the time out to, to watch it because it's an extraordinarily well-constructed, um, well-plotted, uh, and extremely handsomely mounted kind of classic example of how good Hollywood cinema can be. Um, it would be great if there were dozens of these films being pumped out at this sort of rate because you know, I, I don't wanna um like oversell it and say that it's like a landmark. But I would say that it's a very, very, very good piece of cinema and that is a uh a thoroughly entertaining and engrossing way to spend your evening. So, um yeah, that's that's my summary. Um I think it's I think it's very good. Um how about Matt? What did you think? Well, I like that it poses these
4: moral questions and asks, "What would you do? Like, who are you? Are you Bud? Are you Exley? Uh, would you fudge a crime scene to put a guilty man behind bars? Could you shoot a man in the back to ensure that justice is done?" And like, because of this approach, you kind of internalize the action on screen, and you become a, a participant, and that's what. Uh, you know, makes me um, revisit it. I mean, I, I didn't revisit it for a long time, but I'm really glad I did. I was uh, delighted to rediscover it for this podcast. And I think it still holds a lot of weight. Uh, and I, I really fell in love with this one again. And if you're looking for a, a grown-up um 50s set neo-noir, we didn't really talk about whether it is true noir. or We did a little bit, but I guess it's a neo-noir. Um, police procedural with uh, some very satisfying twists and turns uh great dialogue and some great performances from uh some of the preeminent actors of the time it's got some dark humor it's got a, a dash of sleaze uh and it holds up for at least two viewings with that fantastic twist so um big thanks to, to Ollie for, for listening first of all, and for recommending a real, real cracker. I really enjoyed, uh, delving into it again. And, uh, yeah, I'd certainly recommend LA confidential.
3: Yes. So would I, Matt. So would I, in fact, the scene I haven't, I was just thinking about that when I was listening back to you, remembering what I liked about this film so much. Um, I hadn't really gotten into detail about the scene I mentioned earlier, where, Ed Exley. um, I really like the way guy Pierce does this. He's, he revels in this uh, interrogation scene. There's three rooms alongside each other. And these um, <clears throat> Night Owl uh, murder suspects are there. And I, I think Spacey's, I think Jack McTenney even says it himself, like, mm. this is masterful, Ed, or something. Correct me if I'm wrong. And he goes from one to the other, uh, interrogating them about the Night Owl murders, and then covers that actually there's something, it starts to unravel that maybe they, they weren't involved in it, but something else, another crime and the way, the tension that's built up in this sequence is great uh, leading up to, we spoke about, um, Crow's boiling performance when he, when he did Russian roulettes, that guy in that room <laughs> with a gun in his mouth, that is pulsating cinema for me. And that scene it's my favorite scene in the whole film. I, I love the way it's crafted everything about. What I like about the film is in that scene, the, the the morals on show, the the performances, the score, the writing, everything uh in that one scene, uh maybe not doesn't the only thing it's lacking is Kim Basinger's character and the the love element for Bud White, which I which really holds the film together for me as well. Um, I'd absolutely recommend it. It's a beautiful looking film. I, I think it's Hansen's best and I think we, we're all kind of in agreement, um, which has been great to talk about. Uh, Gally, yeah, I'm gonna
1: it? I'm gonna go up to Danny DeVito levels, and uh, I'm gonna challenge Devlin and say that this is <laughs> this is a modern masterpiece. I think I think uh, as far as adaptation and structure, storytelling, the performances, I, I genuinely think this is a tour de force. Um, and I had such a great time revisiting it. Uh, so yeah, we, along with Matt and and the rest of the guys, want to thank Ollie personally for requesting that we discuss it. Uh, I absolutely couldn't recommend it highly enough. Um, Honestly, I think um, two hours will just fly by. This is definitely Curtis Hansen's best film. Um, And go and check out his other works again, because I think they've all got um, real merit. So, yeah. Uh, Well, that's it. Uh, You can find LA Confidential. It's currently streaming on Amazon Prime. So get on it quick before it's in the soon to be lost pile. It's also a wide release on Blu ray DVD. You know, you can buy this from pretty much anywhere. Um I will say buy the DVD if you're into the extras piece, because um the Blu ray is another disappointing release where it's got bugger all on it, which is a shame. So you're better off getting the D V D. Um but yeah, I think that's it then guys. So I think we should say our goodbyes. Yeah,
3: and if like Ollie, you want to recommend something for us to to watch, we we can pick something as well, can't Yeah,
1: yeah, no, of course, yeah. Just um, you know, our our Twitter handles are in the show notes at uh, Rewind Movie Cast. Um, yeah, if you listen to us on Apple Podcasts and you enjoy the show, please leave a review. That would be great. Um, but yeah, if any any future requests, especially during uh during the time that we're in right now, then uh, then we'll take them on board and we'll get them scheduled in. Uh, but it does seem like we're gonna have to deal with the, uh, with the big ship. <laughs> Matt, hey? We're we'll gonna have to do that in the future. <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to uh-huh. that because, uh, you're really pissing on my chips there, pal. <laughs> well, <okay. laughs> Thanks for all for listening, uh, and supporting the show. Stay safe, look after yourself. It's uh, it's Gally in Glasgow signing out.
2: And Devon in London on the QT. and Very hush-hush.
4: I'm on a night train to the big adios. It's Matt in South Korea.
3: Fucking me and fucking Bud aren't the same thing, you know. It's Patrick <laughs> from London.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening, everyone, and we'll uh, catch you next time on the Rewind Movie Podcast.
0: For Hollywood. That phony, super coney Hollywood. They come from Chillicothe and Paducas With their bazookas To get their names up in lights All armed with photos From local rotos With their hair in ribbons And legs in tights Hooray for Hollywood You may be only in your neighborhood But if you think that you can be an actor See Mr. Factor He'd make a monkey look good Within a half an hour you'll look like Tyrone Power Hooray for high